Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, everybody. This is God, Lord Almighty, King of the Universe. Thanks for listening. I uh, just wanted to say hello. This is my regular voice. I know it's not very impressive. I know it's not Morgan Freeman-esque or anything, but this is how I talk, and I don't think you should make fun of me for that because it would not be in your interest. Trust me. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and today I am joined by the man who helps God run his wildly popular Twitter account, at the Tweet of God, and just launched a new podcast called Godcast. Comedian and writer David Jabberbaum. Welcome, David. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm so excited to talk to you. Um, I guess just to, to start to get this out of the way, can you kind of describe your relationship uh, with God? No. I mean, not in, a, not in a single podcast I can. It's very complex. I just know that about I guess 11 years ago now, he came to me in my home office and he, in the form of a burning futon, my futon was burning and it it did go up in flames. It didn't sit there and not burn like the burning bush did. This actually went up in flames. And he said, I want to communicate again to the people of the world. And you're a comedy writer who's currently out of a job and I'm just going to commandeer you indefinitely. And that's what it's been ever since. I take no responsibility whatsoever for any of the tweets that I type and send. Ah, got it. So they just they just come to you from from God. So you've been helping for over 10 years with at the tweet of God, which has become incredibly popular. Um, It's over 6 million followers, which is a lot, maybe not as many as you would think God would have, but but still a lot. That's a unit that God refers to as one Holocaust. I have a Holocaust of survivors. (laughs) Was that the goal when, when you started this thing? It wasn't my goal. It may have been his. I don't know. <laughs> um, so, I mean, what about you? Were you a particularly religious person growing up? No, I was. And I know this is going to shock anybody who knows anything about comedy, but I was Jewish. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. I can relate. Wow. Shocking, <laughs> you and right? I, we're, like the only, <laughs> we're the only two. Uh, I was not raised particularly religiously. Uh, I was not raised atheistically either. Uh, we went to temple on the high holy days and what have you. And uh, it was just something that I just kind of fell into. And I just noticed as I got older and I took various jobs in the workforce and just watched media that that religion played a large, large, and in my opinion, often negative role in society and, and the world. I'm not the first person to notice that, but uh, I just turned to that. I thought it would be a funny point of view to express things. Uh, it's not the only point of view I have comedically, but it's the one that I that's worked. Do you remember God's first tweet and how it went over? Oh boy, it's there. It's listed. Uh, it was something about how about the first day of creation. Makes sense. It was a conscious uh, echo of the first day of creation and it ended with, and it was good or something like that. I guess you can, there's 
services by which you can look things like yes, that up, yes. Dell. So it was something like that. And and also I created the account originally. It was to promote a book. Oh, the yes. first the first idea was to write a book called The Last Testament, a memoir by God which I, I did in fact write. And as I was writing it, my editor at the time suggested that I do a Twitter account and set it up and have it become somewhat known or have some kind of following so that by the time the book actually came out, I'd have some kind of base from which to market. And so I worked on the book and the Twitter account at the same time. And the Twitter account took off, relatively speaking, fairly quickly to the point where when the book came out, people thought the book was actually an attempt to capitalize on a Twitter <laughs> account, when in fact the opposite was true. Was there a, was there a particular moment when it uh, started going viral or, or something that really hit, uh, that, that started adding a lot of followers to the account? There was a good slow and steady growth. I think once it got to uh, Ricky Gervais's notice, and we started having a little back and forth because he, of course, is perhaps the world's uh, foremost and angriest atheist. So we were a natural pair, and he drew a lot of attention to it, for which I'll be forever grateful. And it's been a slow and steady thing, although I, I took a year off in 2016, 2017 to work on a television show I was developing and produced for Netflix, and also partly for mental health reasons. It was, as I'm sure everyone who works on Twitter can tell you, it does weird things to your mind, to your brain, to your comedic sensibility, to everything. Yeah, I mean, I was I was looking back at other interviews you've given. You've given not not too many over the years, but a couple. Um, and you at one point compared the experience of tweeting on behalf of God to uh, taking heroin. Yes, and the experience of not tweeting for a year is like heroin withdrawal. <laughs> yeah. So you're damned either way. It's just very addicting. I think it's true for any person who's looking to be funny. If you're looking to be funny, by definition, you want to get laughs, you want to get approval, you want to feel appreciated. And with Twitter, you have that happen immediately and calculably. And you see the number and you can see the relative number compared to previous things you've done? Is it better? Is it worse? And it's absolute heroin for comedic sensibilities, particularly if you're if you're weak and insecure <laughs> to begin with, like many of us are, and like I certainly am. Um, I wondered if it could make if it made you uh, relate to Trump at all in the way that he clearly uh, has a Twitter addiction that has now been uh, he's now had to go cold turkey on on Twitter. Um, so did that did that make you relate to him at all? No. <laughs> Fair enough. You did, like Trump, uh, get uh, he got permanently suspended. You got briefly suspended, I believe, uh, a couple years ago. Can you explain what happened? I got briefly suspended for for a couple of reasons, uh, a couple different times. The less interesting one was I got suspended for, I think I used the Twitter symbol or some other copyrighted thing that Twitter has without their permission. And that was just a purely legalistic suspension, which I understood. You were kind of trying to imply that you were uh, verified as God? Is that what happened? Yeah, that's right. I think I was trying to imply I was verified, <laughs> which is a whole other subplot. But I was uh, I was suspended because I, I tweeted something. Uh, it was... Yeah, I actually have it here. If you don't mind, okay, go I'll ahead. read it for yeah. you. Uh, it says, uh, this was in June 2019. If gay people are a mistake, they're a mistake I've made hundreds of millions of times, which proves I'm incompetent and shouldn't be relied on upon for anything. Right, which is the usual ironic take that, <laughs> that I give. But they took that as being genuinely anti-gay. 
Yeah, from God, no less. Yes. And while there are many things about the world that God has a very wrong point of view about, that is not and will never be one of them. That's just not going to happen. So they got that one wrong, and they (laughs) realized it. And I got back on, and I let them know that their sense of irony had some deficiencies that ought to be corrected. Yeah, especially considering all the things they've let uh, go over the over the last few years. That the fact that they flagged that one is really suspicious. Yes, but at the same time, th- they're the platform that's allowing any of this. They're a private company. They're allowing all of this, so they have the right to do anything. They have the right to kick me off. They have the right to kick Trump off. They have the right to do anything they want to, and it's not censorship. It's a. It might be stupid, but it's not censorship. You have had, you know, I mean, I I guess there's been people who have taken offense to God's tweets. Have there been sort of memorable instances of of backlash or or sort of getting into back and forth people who who really are are upset about what what God is tweeting? Are are you referring to, you mean from a religious standpoint? Yeah, from people who just, you know, think that what God is saying is not, is inappropriate. Not as much as you'd like, not as much as I would like, to be (laughs) honest with you. Because what I have found out is that people... What people get really upset about is when you make fun of either Jesus or Muhammad. When you make fun of one of those two actual human beings, because that's their guy, and that makes them feel really upset. But God is everybody's guy, and everybody recognizes that God is a bastard. That's why Jesus had to come down to fix it for on his behalf. And so people don't get that upset when you make fun of God in that way. And I don't generally make fun of Jesus. I have nothing bad to say about Jesus as a person. Christianity, I have plenty to say about, but not nothing about Jesus. So it started as a, as a book, and, and, a, and, the, and the Twitter account kind of went with it. You've since uh, written a play um, about God yes. um, that was uh, very successful, and now you have a podcast. So what has the process been like of, of helping to adapt this, uh, this Twitter account and, and this whole universe into, into a podcast? Well, I think of it as adapting a, a character. God is a character that I know very well, and it's just a character. It's not, it's not any bigger of a character than any other character would be. He just happens to be God, but he's in many ways just the cranky old man on the lawn of the universe just shouting his fist and saying, so it's just a matter of adapting it. And and I always thought that a a podcast was the ideal form, more so even than Twitter, because uh, it's the voice of God and it's imaginative and you don't have to, you can picture it in your head, which is the ideal place to be picturing God. But I never wanted to do it myself. I never have, I don't have the energy. I don't have the technical know-how. I don't have a lot of things necessary to be able to do it by myself. But finally, my uh, manager and I were able to get in contact with Forever Dog Productions, who have just been amazing. And it's it's a dream team of people working on it with. And we've, over the last few months, put the show together and talked about who we wanted on the show and what the segments could be on the show and how the show could be formatted. And I knew early on that my friend Tara Sands, who's a professional voiceover artist, would be my my sidekick. She's Joan of Arc. And I knew that was the right sidekick for me, that I had to have one, somebody who was a human being and had some empathy for other human beings. And it's been a blast. It's really, really been fun. I'm I'm enjoying it immensely, and I I hope it's successful. Obviously, I'm not doing it to not be successful, but 
whether it is or not, I'm having a great time doing it. On your first episode, you had, I think, just the ideal guest in Stephen Colbert, who's- The ideal guest. Not a single person on earth would have been better than him. <laughs> who's, who knows a lot about God and uh, and is very familiar with, with everything that, that God talks about. He's someone who I've been wanting to get on this podcast for a long time, so I'm hoping maybe God can put in a good word for me. So he's someone who you actually, you knew personally from back in the, in the Daily Show days, right? Yes, and that may have something to do with why he was <laughs> our first guest. Uh, yes, no, I've I've known him uh, since the Daily Show, and I wrote the songs for his Christmas special when he was on the Colbert Report. And he is just I, I I've always said this like he is a bodhisattva. He is he is a saint on earth who he is a saint on earth who has stayed on earth to help other people find their sainthood. He's the best. Um, my question to just to continue on that: What were your earliest Memories of, of working with him at The Daily Show and first impressions of him as a, as a comedian. I remember I got there in 99 and he was there and I think we hit it off pretty quickly, pretty well. And I remember he, uh, you know, he his knowledge of everything is encyclopedic. And he had a copy of the original science fiction magazine in which the original tract for Dianetics was published. And it's this long L. Ron Hubbard penned thing. And he and I prank called the Scientology headquarters and as if we were concerned Scientologists asking about certain contradictions between current church practice and the original Dianetics outline in this thing. <laughs> I, I didn't, it was all Stephen. I, he, Stephen did the talking and most of the thinking. I stood on the sidelines and occasionally suggested ideas. And that was a fun bonding experience. I'll never forget that. That, that was fun. And we always had a similar, this is flattering myself to say this, but I think we have a similar sensibility and a similar worldview. And, you know, we, we, we get along really well, as did John Stewart and I. Yeah, so you you were hired just after or just when John Stewart took over? Is that is that what happened? I was hired five months after John Stewart was hired. So you were kind of coming in during that transition period in the show where it really took off and took it and went in a, in a new direction. So what do you remember about those early days of of the Daily Show with John Stewart? It was uh, for the first few years, John. And the whole team were kind of honing our voice and losing some staff members and getting others and getting a more coherent staff and constantly evolving. And John really had a vision of what he wanted the show to be. And we were all happy. I was certainly happy to be part of that vision. And it just got better and better and more successful, I think, largely because of the Iraq war. I was the head writer during the Iraq war, which was just a comedy bonanza. <laughs> was that challenging, though? I mean, you say that, and it's true that it was a comedy bonanza on the show. But I mean, it must have been difficult to find humor in that time. It was difficult to find humor in that time. But what you did was you kind of adjusted, you moved the goalposts of what was hilarious. You know, when, when things are really awful, they're just slightly funny is the equivalent of really funny. So we were able to be slightly funny talking about Abu Ghraib. That was a, a raging success. And it must have been, an, I mean, an incredible training ground to be able to find comedy in anything. It was incredible training ground. I, I learned so many lessons about comedy, some intentionally, some not intentionally, some directly from John, some just from being in that environment. But it was amazing. I was there for 11 years and I never 
thought, still don't think I'll ever have a job for 11 years, but I stayed there because it was just so great. It was a great place. Um, I don't know if you were the head writer yet at this time, but obviously the the first show back after 9-11 was, you know, kind of this iconic moment. What do you remember about that, that day and that week and the experience of trying to put a show on at that time? I was a writer at the time. I wasn't a head writer yet. John... You know, that, that long monologue he gave at the top of that show, that that was really, as you could tell, it was all him. It was really all him. He was just speaking from the heart, as I think David Letterman had a week earlier or a few days earlier. And we didn't know what we were going to do. And it, it was confusing. And comedy was declared dead by Vanity Fair. And because uh, the weight of the moment was such that you couldn't imagine that time would, in fact, continue to move forward, as it always seems to do. And gradually in time, we realized we were, we had already been moving in a direction that was a little less silly and a little more political. But certainly after then, that was the crystallizing moment when at that point, all right, we're, we're not going to be making fun of odd kooks uh, in, the, in the boonies anymore. We need to you know, get more political and, and, and more active and more, more grounded, not because we had any illusion that we were going to change anything. We we didn't change anything. And you, it, comedy hasn't changed anything since Aristophanes tried to do that. But it provides a catharsis, or it can, and that is a useful human thing. So if it provides catharsis, and I know it did because people came up to us during and afterwards and said, you were our news during that time. You really made me feel better. And that's that's the best you can hope for if you're trying to communicate with people is not to change anything, but to provide comfort or solace or relief or laughs or whatever. Yeah. I mean, that was really the start of people watching comedy to get their news in a way that that wasn't really done before. And I think has continued on to this day with, you know, and people, some of the people you probably worked with there have carried that on, whether it's John Oliver, you know, or Samantha Bee and, and really, um, people watching these shows to get their news. Did that feel like a strange responsibility for a comedy writer? We never felt there was responsibility. We never, ever considered that a responsibility. It was not. We felt that, put it this way, a joke that's about something real and that makes a point and has a kind of substance is more satisfying comedically. It feels meatier and weightier as a comedy writer. But it doesn't have any more significance or responsibility than a dick joke would. It, it really doesn't. We, we never felt any kind of responsibility. And some people thought we should have, but we never did. And yeah, never did. As we're speaking now, it's just been a, a few days since Jon Stewart joined Twitter for the first time. Yes. I don't know if you've been following. He's only posted a few things so far. So I'm curious if you have any uh, any advice for him as a, as a Twitter expert. I have no advice to give about comedy to Jon Stewart. He doesn't <laughs> need any advice from me or anybody about how to write funny and how to comment on world events. <laughs> I do want to just add... Um, that's a sign of the Daily Show with Trevor Noah is amazing. It's fantastic. And the fact that it was so reinvented to be in someone else's voice so completely thoroughly uh, is is amazing. And, and and that ought to be noted. It's a remarkable thing. You did um, then later uh, start writing for uh, James Corden's show, Late Late Show. Yes. Well, how did that experience compare to your years at The Daily Show? It was really fun. I, it was not ever going to be as as political or hefty because James is a different person. James is a true showman. James is an entertainer. And I was writing for that. And that's another side of me that I, I like doing. I write lyrics and I write 
silly jokes. And I love doing that. Uh, I really love doing that. And James is a great guy. It's a great office. It was really uh, just a very, very relaxed office, as was The Daily Show. Uh, Both John and James know how to run a show. As anybody in the business would tell you, a, a show, the tone of a show is set by the guy or woman at the top. That's it. And everything trickles down from there. And I was lucky to have James Corden and not say Ellen DeGeneres. So I was very happy about that. Yeah. So did you get to write some music, uh, some lyrics on that show? Um, I did. I wrote over a, a dozen songs on that show. And I wrote both of James's uh, Tony songs, the opening numbers for the Tonys that he did in 2016 and 2019, I think were the years, which were great. And yeah, that was that was really fun. I think the best thing I did was, and I, I was there and then I left and then I was there and then I left and then I was there and then I was left. <laughs> I, I did three stints there because it's just, it's just a great job. Like I said, it's great people in the office. Uh, last, in 2019, I wrote a, a boy band Hanukkah song called A Week in a Day that had a, an all-star Jewish boy band cast of Zach Braff, and you should look it up. I, it like five, five people. Maybe we'll we'll play a clip of it at the end of the interview. Great, yeah, it, yeah. It, it was that was really fun. It came out great. So the the songwriting part of your uh, career is a whole other you know thing, and and you collaborated a lot. I know with Adam Schlesinger, who uh, who passed this past year um, due to COVID. So I just wanted to get some some memories from you about working with him because I know you know he was a real powerhouse in this in this space as well. It's just really stupid. It's just yeah. really stupid that uh, somebody that brilliant, that collaborative, and that young and, and and healthy dies of this stupid ass disease at the age of fifty two. I haven't even. I've never been sad about it because I can't really process it. I think you have to process something to be sad about it, and I just I just can't understand the concept that he is no longer here. He was a brilliant, a brilliant friend. I was one of dozens and dozens of people whose artistic lives he enhanced. And it's just ridiculous. It's just a really terrible thing. But the work that he did do lives on and the people that he touched will remember him forever. And I think about him every day. Do you have a particular um, memory that stands out of of collaborating or writing with him? (sighs) It's not a particular memory, but he was, I generally, I did the lyrics and he did the music, but he is such a good lyricist himself that I had to really raise my game when I was working with him to justify my presence in the team (laughs) because he can write and has written so many great lyrics that are really funny that I I really had to up my game. And he also understood comedy music better than anybody I've ever met by far because when you're writing a a comedy music song, it's it's, it's a unique thing. It's a unique thing that has to be learned and he knew how to do it. And he was also just a really nice guy, just a really, really nice guy that ought to be said. And that's extremely important because that's how, you know, that's how you deal with other people. Are are you nice or not? And it's not an incidental point. It's a fundamental point that he was really nice guy. So you've had Stephen Colbert as your first guest. You had Moses as your second guest. Who else is coming up? Does God have dream guests? Who are you really uh, excited to to have on the podcast? Well, I know we already have booked Lizzie Borden and Amelia Earhart. Those are big. So both of those ladies will be on the show in upcoming (laughs) weeks. Uh, I have many 
dream guests. Neil deGrasse Tyson would be a wonderful guest. I'd love to have Ricky Gervais on the show. Could be anybody. God can talk to really anybody. God knows a lot of things about a lot of things. So I, I really do believe that we can have anybody on the show. It's just a matter of whether we can whether we can book anybody. So, and then you've, you've done the, as I said, the book and the play and the podcast. Are there other, uh, are there other mediums that you could imagine God moving into in the future? As a matter of fact, there's another book coming out in the fall. I have another book. Oh yeah. What's that book going to be? This is the first time I'm mentioning it publicly. It's a response to the book of Psalms that King David wrote. This is called the book of Slams. And it's 97 divine diatribes castigating mankind for its total failure. That's called the Book of Slams. And they'll be out with Simon & Schuster in the fall. Very exciting. Well, I'm looking forward to that. So yeah, uh, I guess I guess that, that brings us to the end here. Um, is, there, uh, is there anything else that you want to, uh, that you want to say on behalf of God or, or a message that you, that you have for listeners? Yes. I would say that the best way to support the Godcast is, of course, to listen to it, but then to buy such wonderful products as Helix Mattresses, uh, BetterHelp.com, <laughs> and of course, my favorite sponsor of all, Hello Tushy. I can't tell you how wonderful it is and how great it makes God feel to sponsor, be sponsored by Hello Tushy. It's it's a wonderful, it's a win-win for everybody. That is wonderful. Well, I'm glad that we gave them some free uh, promotion on this podcast as well. I'm sure they'll, they'll appreciate it. They deserve it. They make a quality, <laughs> quality bidet. Um, well, David, thank you so much for, for talking with me and, and good luck with everything. I'm looking forward to, to more podcast episodes and the book and, and everything. So uh, this has been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks a lot. All right. Thank you so much to David Javerbaum and God, of course, for joining me on this bonus episode. You can follow God on Twitter at The Tweet of God and subscribe to Godcast wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. The Last Laugh is distributed by ACAST for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.